Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. And my name's Sam. Today we're talking to Doug Hurst and Tracy Hurst of Metropolitan Brewery in Chicago. Doug is the co-founder, CEO, head brewer, and fix-it man. And Tracy is also the co-founder and president. Today we're going to dive into a little bit about the community they're creating at Metropolitan, dive into the European styles that they make, uh, adapted here to the U.S. kind of palette, and then we're also going to talk about a little collaboration between Alexi and Metropolitan. So everyone is going to be ready to drink humbucker out of cans in the next couple months. We're drinking lager this summer. That's lager. all we want to drink in the summertime. Hell yeah! Without further ado, let's dive and get heavy. All right, Sam, we have to pretend like it's a 15-minute episode. Oh, okay. All right. No, no, no tangents. No, ta no, ta no tangents. There are 10 questions. We will ask all 10 oh, no. in sequential order. That is it. Oh, I set myself up for failure on that one. I am going to do all the tangents. Great. Someone's got to go, go off. Welcome to Heavy Hops. Uh, thanks to Tracy and Doug for joining us today. Um, I guess I want to get started with a little bit of backstory on uh, on Metropolitan. How did you end up uh, with a brewery in, it was in Ravenswood at the beginning. Uh, how did you end up in Chicago and how did you end up with a brewery? The answer is uh, stupidity. No, no, that's not no. it. Uh, well, I think that both uh, Tracy and I are better at working for ourselves than we are working for other people and we always had for the most part me more than Tracy had worked for other people you know regular jobs and so on and came to the point where we realized that it was time to move on to doing our own thing uh, I had been a home brewer for 20 some years uh, and decided that would be the uh, most logical step to get into brewing because I was really passionate about beer and brewing and Tracy is uh, good at running business and was also into beer. I'll let her speak for herself. Uh, so I went to the Siebel Institute of Technology here in Chicago through their diploma program. Uh, got trained up on pro brewing, which is quite a bit different than home brewing actually. And uh, we were, started working through the business plan. Got it open finally in 2008, late 08, late 2008. Uh, we really shipped our first beer in January 2009. What do you have to add, Tracy? Well, there, like a lot of craft beer from that era, there's a lot of personal history to this too. Um, so Doug and I used to be married, and um, we traveled around, and um, I liked beer, um, but I didn't really know a lot about beer, but then we kind of like, I mean, we've been to beer fest and beer bars from coast to coast, which FYI, the best beer fest still in the country is great taste in the Midwest. And I think the best beer bar is, is hot leaf. I think it's uh, coast to coast, probably the best beer bar Testify. I've ever been to. Hot leaf. <laughs> What'd you say? Best buy? Testify. Testify. <laughs> like, why are you talking about Best Buy? <laughs> so, anyways, we so we were together as a as a couple um, for uh, let's see, shit, dude, how long? Six years, and then we were married for eleven. 
and we started the brewery in that time. So um, working together and making something together and like dealing with, cause you know, we were the first brewery to open in Chicago in 10 years. So there was, you know, very little regulation and, you know, we kind of just did it by the seat of our pants really. And, you know, beer and, you know, at least, I don't know if it's true anymore, but back then, like there's no tech help. So, you know, you're solving your problems on your own. So it's like very much a lifestyle uh, thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and now <laughs> we're divorced, <laughs> which also talks to what doing something like this is like. Um, so there's like that personal element to it too. But Chicago, you know, we landed in Chicago. I grew up in Milwaukee. Doug grew up in Madison. You know, we lived in, the, in upstate New York. We lived outside San Francisco. This is just where we wanted to be. And then in terms of doing German-style beers, you know, this was a heavily immigrated area by Germans. And um, the water here is very similar to um, water in areas of Germany. So it makes sense that German-style beers, this is one of the places that they sort of blossomed in this country. So, you know, wanting to do that type of beer, wanting to live in the Midwest, well, I'm very much an urban person, you know, wanting to live in the city, that all sort of played together, too, into like the personal side of building a brewery, um, which I hope is still true in craft beer. I feel like that's just a really meaningful. And I think, especially lately, we're realizing that we have to find meaning in life. <laughs> you know, we have to do things that mean things to us. So, yeah, so that's, I, that was what I would add to that. And I think that that ethic sort of led to the name Metropolitan Brewing, mm -hmm. being in mm -hmm. the city and uh, you know, the city being a place where people come together to build great things, get stuff yeah. done. And that comes through in our labels and our beer names and so on, being machines and tools, robots and mm -hmm. and so on. <clears throat> Things that build. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, first beer shipping out in 2009. And so uh, that was definitely before the class of new brewers in 2011, 2012 uh, mm -hmm. that make up a majority of the beer world here. So there was definitely a moment where uh, Metropolitan was one of the few breweries in Chicago at a time yep. when the market was being bombarded with larger regional beers yep. or imported beer mm -hmm. and things like that. Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of what the landscape was like at that point here in Chicago? When we moved here in 2000 or late 99. We moved here in 98, uh, in, 98 right? 99, 98, I think. 99. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, I was shocked that we had moved to this large city and there were like two brew pubs and a production brewery and that was it. And, and, and you know, there were some other, a couple of others in the suburbs, but... I thought, where are all the breweries? What's going on? I came from Wisconsin, home of beer, and via uh, New York and California, and <clears throat> there were, you know, Colorado breweries all over the place in Denver, Portland, Seattle, um, but not very many, if any, very few here. Uh, so there I were think pubs. that was group pubs is kind of what yeah. who had the landscape at that time. So uh, that was part of the impetus for opening the brewery, really, it was yeah, because we true. needed more breweries. And, so, yep. uh, and when we opened in 08, the only other breweries in the city were Goose Island, 
that was the only other production brewery and rock bottom and peace half acre built out the same summer we did yes. i think yes half I mean, acre were, opened we, about two months after us was it yes like we were siblings like twin siblings mm -hmm. like they opened really close when we did and then rev <laughs> brew pub was about nine months after that ten months right so, so we were uh, the three of the new, the three uh, vanguards of the new wave. I, I, that's <laughs> how I've always looked at it. Um, yeah, certainly uh, friends with all of those dudes still. And, you know, the brew pub folks. I mean, a lot of people have moved on, but, you know, um, Rock Bottom closed, right? Did Rock Bottom close? They I just think it's, did. It's we were just talking of, about yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> Recently, I think there was uh, uncertainty as to whether they were going to open again. Yeah. yeah. I know the restaurant group filed for bankruptcy. Yeah. Peace. I mean, Cutler's just sitting down there winning awards like crazy. Yeah. He's he still there. You know, that to me is very Chicago. It, <laughs> just, you know, a bunch of people bumbling about life, you know, doing their thing, quietly being the absolute fucking best. <laughs> at something you know we're just in chicago we're just so unassuming i feel like we just work hard and we do great work and like <laughs> you know it just feels so normal to me and uh at the same time i feel super proud of the community and how we treat each other you know how we work together and things like that so in terms of how the scope of how things have happened i think you know, you could argue about different beer styles and fads and things like that. But I think the really relevant, when I think about a beer market like Wisconsin or Seattle or California and certainly here, you know, out, outer Illinois areas, I think about the community and what is it like? Is it supportive? Do they know each other? You know, do they work together? Um, and I think that I feel really proud about that culture here in Chicago. And I don't think I would do this as long you know, as I plan to, if we didn't have a culture like this. And I'm glad to say that that's been the state, that's been the case all along. Yeah. I've heard about other, uh, places, uh, brewery centers and where they don't talk to each other. They don't help each other out. And I find that strange because that's just a natural mm -hmm. part of the way it, it at least has been here in Chicago. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a big culture and an interconnectedness, not only between breweries themselves, but also restaurants and the brewery connection is very, very prominent in Chicago. Totally. Do you think yep. a lot of the styles that you produce are also reflective of what the kind of working class here is as far as general people working in the restaurant industry to offices to manufacturing? Do you see a kind of connection between the beers you make and what Chicago is as a city. Hmm. There's go I'll go, Doug, you. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll go. Um, there's a ton of synergy and reason behind the beers that we make. Um, certainly a nod to the culture and the history of the area, but also, you know, in terms of, you know, <laughs> while you asked that, actually, I was reminded of, um, I was doing a sales call at a Whole Foods in the city and um, you walked up to the beer department and three Floyd's beers were just like chest level, just right there across as you're walking up the aisle. And then I look from our beer and it's all the way at the end of the cooler. Like it was as close to the 
swinging staff door as you could be without actually being in the back of the grocery store. So the beer buyer comes up and, you know, I start, I start meeting with him and I'm like, you know, you could put, you could legit put three Floyd's beer in the last stall in the women's room and it's going to fucking sell. (laughs) Maybe if you switched, because he was complaining about how our beer didn't sell. I said, maybe if you like switched at least or like moved us to chest level and I'll give you some signage and, you know, I'll help you bring your numbers up. And he goes, you know, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I told him I was the owner, but if I did, he forgot, I think. because He goes, well, you know, you guys just aren't cool. <laughs> I'm like, okay. He goes, you know, you're like dad beer. And that's when I look at him and I'm like... I'm like, yeah, and who the fuck do you think has all the money to spend on beer? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dad, it's the people, families, um, like you said. And that's what made me think of that story, Sam, is, you know, office workers and manufacturing and third shift and, you know, people. Like, beer for the proletariat is one of our slogans. Yeah. Um, so the beer definitely is a part of that. And you know, we're proud of that. And also as a business person, you know, the nerds are great because they talk and they visit and they, you know, they write reviews and they blog and stuff. But at the end of the day, the people who keep your lights on are like the everybody, family, you know, multi-generation, you know, young people, all of them. So that's, that's always been important to us to make sure that we remain, you know, relevant yeah, to that demographic. It seems like there's definitely a huge cultural element to what you're doing, which is definitely a very uh, European aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, did you do you have any experience traveling to Europe and experiencing this firsthand, or was this something innate yes. in both of you? Absolutely. Part of my brewer's training through the Siebel Institute was uh, spending six weeks in Munich, Germany, and drinking what they all beer. If you go to a bar and order a beer, it's a Hellas Lager. And before I went over that, I was into the American IPAs and so on and beer, hoppy beers and where we were headed at that point and ultimately went in the extreme in this country. And <clears throat> I went over there and I thought, oh, all these beers are very light and they all taste the same. The Hellas and the Kolsch and the Dort and the whatever, you know, oh, they have a wheat beer, that's different, and a Dunkel, the dark beer. And after I spent six weeks in Munich, I realized how vastly different even the different Hellases that are made in Munich are, let alone the various light-colored lager styles from other parts of Germany, Pilsner, for instance, and the subtle variation, which... Americans, with their everything has to be pounding on your head, don't often, uh, maybe don't always appreciate that subtle variation. But in Germany, the subtle differences between beers are huge to them. They'll taste one and be like, this one is very hoppy. And I'm (laughs) like, what? what? That tastes just like the other one. This is much more hoppy. (laughs) Um, But after drinking that for six weeks uh, exclusively, I really gained an appreciation for that kind of subtlety and nuance in beer. And to me, Could nuance... Could you actually tell the difference, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, drinking uh, Lo- Lo- Brau or, ver- <laughs> or Lohenbrau versus uh, Spaten, 
uh, very different when you're when you're sitting there and and the beers are fresh in a beer garden. Um, yeah, and so I brought that back here. And part of to me why we did what we did with the lagers is bringing that German heritage back in in the Midwest. Uh, mm-hmm. Beer in America became huge uh, in the Midwest in a lot of ways with breweries in St. Louis and in Milwaukee, Milwaukee. and even in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. where we had German lager brewers before Prohibition. Um, <clears throat> and so to me, I was going back to that original Midwestern brewing heritage uh, and bringing in non-watered down <laughs> german inspired <laughs> lagers that's uh you brought up a couple of interesting points here now the uh the landscape in 2008 2009 was uh i would argue in some ways craft beer was decidedly different from yellow fizzy beer right yes and yeah. so yeah how did you uh so it was more leaning on the notion on the notions that we just talked about as your entry in instead of being in opposition to yellow fizzy beer yeah yeah uh and and to that point i mean at that at that point ipa was how how many ibus can you put in it now it's off in some other direction but at, at that point it was let's just put as many ibus how bitter can it be and i thought you know, everybody else is doing that just fine. What can I bring to that party? It's already been done. Two Hearted Ale already exists. Uh, mm-hmm. There's nothing better that can be done with it. <laughs> For real. And, and For so, real. So standard. I'm going to go somewhere else and bring, you know, a, a little bit of variety into craft beer because it. Mm-hmm. one of my early complaints about beer in general, not necessarily specifically in Chicago, was... Uh, you go to a bar and they have a menu with 12 beers on it and they're all the same light American lager. And 10 years later, you go into a bar and they have 10 beers on the menu and they're all the same super hoppy American IPA. <laughs> like, we need some variety. Let's get, let's get some differences, different beers for different occasions sort of thing. I think it's kind of funny because we brought up Prohibition for a minute and, you know, pre-Prohibition, these kind of beers were common in America. They were being brewed all the time because you had first generation immigrants coming over and taking their heritage and planting it here. Mm-hmm. Prohibition mm-hmm. happened and everyone seemed to lose their taste buds. And they were like, we don't like that <laughs> yeah. anymore. We want we want fizzy light beer. And it's kind of funny to just see everything come full circle again. And, yeah, you know, yeah. these kind of beers are kicking it again in our culture as well as everything else that's circulating around. And it's Really cool to me that you guys are kind of continuing on with that classical heritage. Thanks. Let's, uh, let's dive into some of the beer that uh, is in front of us here. Uh, we were talking about uh, Hellas, and we have uh, uh, Stromhaus Hellas uh, today. It comes in a can, which is unique uh, <laughs> as well for, uh, for Metropolitan. Um, can you tell me a little bit about this beer and also the format as well? Uh, yeah, Hellas. Hellas is the light lager of Munich. Hellas means light as in color, not light as in flavor or body necessarily. This is a beer that took me 10 years to get up the guts and courage to brew. And you drink it and it just seems like a very simple, basic beer. Uh, and that's why it was uh, scary for me to, to do it on the full scale because... 
there's nothing to hide behind in a beer like this. There's one malt, maybe two malts at the most, and a little bit of hops to balance it out. And if you make any mistakes in process or technique or ingredient proportions, it will show up immediately. There's nothing to hide. There's not 100 IBUs to hide behind. <laughs> also, um, if, if it's been sitting around too long or it's been in the light or whatever, uh, those packaging and, and uh, uh, flaws will start to show up, the staleness and so on. And so, yeah, making this um, took courage. It's a, I mean, it's a relatively easy beer to brew on a basic level, but doing the fine-tuning of that brewing process is important. And then that's where the nuance part comes in. And again, you could make 10 different helices that are all the same uh but but have slightly very varying differences in their flavor even if they're made with the same ingredients so that's where that came from tracy what about the uh the packaging and um, so on it comes in a can this was one of our first can <laughs> releases yeah uh okay so um before the pandemic hit we had decided to move our beer into cans. Um, being in business, starting up when we did, canning beer is just not something craft beer did at the time. Um, it was part of setting yourself apart from macro beer. Um, the, you know, uh, supplies were difficult in that you'd have to buy a semi-load of cans at a time, which you know, a small brewery can't really buy 53 square, you know, 53 feet <laughs> worth of empty material. Um, and the labeling didn't look good. You know, you'd lose all kinds of process color and things like that. And in fact, you know, Randy Mosher is our graphic designer. Um, you know, thank goodness, because <laughs> he's amazing. Um, you know, we actually just kind of threw it at him at a con you know, on a, on a call once, you know, way back then saying, what do you think about cans? And, you know, he's just like, no, it just doesn't look good. The labels don't look good. We'll lose all of the you know, design. So we scrapped it and then went about our business. Um, Half Acre, not very long after that, started doing cans. Um, and, you know, from there, it just kind of took off. So, you know, then flash forward all of these years, we're looking at, you know, putting Jetstream, our uh, seasonal, our spring, um, summer seasonal out in package. And I thought, you know, if we're, we're going to take this leap, why don't we do it? We decided to put three beers in cans just to, you know, make it worth the investment and the work. And we designed and had COLA approved labels for Stromhaus Hellas that Doug just described, Humbucker, Dortmunder, our collab with Alexi and Scorch Tundra, and um, Jet, uh, yeah, Jetstream, the seasonal. Then just as we were, and we were going to pay for this project with cash. So like the brewery was doing and the taproom was doing well enough that we could just launch this project with our day, you know, day-to-day -day earnings, which is kind of important. We didn't have to take a loan out, that type of thing. Then the pandemic hits and we get shut down and everything comes to a screeching halt. Um, and, you know, I wound up doing lots of, I mean, I had a lot of paperwork to do as a result. And a lot of that is reading and researching what people we're doing, you know, in terms of how shoppers were behaving during the situation that was at hand. And it turns out that people started because we're not especially, you know, we 
probably still shouldn't be in a lot of ways, but, you know, a few months ago, we were advised, you know, don't be out of your damn house unless you need to be. So we go and run your errands and you go to pick up beer and you grab as large a pack of a beer that you rely on and you know, but that isn't cheap, crappy beer. So as we're seeing this information come out, I'm talking, you know, I was talking with our head sales rep, uh, Megan Simon, and our brand manager at uh, Windy City, and we're discussing this. And I said, you know what? We're, let's do it. Let's do this canning project and let's put crankshaft in 12 packs. And that just sort of kicked all of this off. Um, we wound up, you know, in terms of the business side of it, um, we wound up um, getting money from the government that we put towards the project. So, you know, even in a pandemic, we were able to fund a project when our receipts were a very small fraction of what they were right before pandemic hit. So um, that's kind of how the canning project came out. And then in terms of our original art, you know, our original feelings about cans, they look so much better now. The labels look really good. We even have a metallic part, you know, metallic piece in our label. The cans look really super sexy. Um, so, you know, we just kind of waited for, <laughs> for the technology and everything to catch up. You can, you don't have to buy a semi load of cans, even though now we kind of need to. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that's kind of, you know, both the business and the art side of what happened with the cans and it worked, it worked the cans, you know, all of the people out there who wanted to support us and help get us through this pandemic. If you bought some of our canned beer, you did it. <laughs> you made it happen. Yeah. For us, with regard to switching from bottles to cans, you know, we're a lager brewery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it takes us longer to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> the beer has to be lagered for a long time. <laughs> takes us a long time to switch to a new packaging. No, there, there is something to be said of the rhythm of a place uh, representing yep. the style of the business. I know, uh, Tracy, we've talked about this before um, with regard to breweries that do these traditional styles or lager breweries working in a different, um, in a slower, more methodical uh, mm -hmm. fashion. And I think back to uh, about this as well, to a trip to Jester King and mm -hmm. we're talking about mixed fermentation beers that take months to be finished. And I'm sitting there and everyone and we're listening to Earth and everyone's just walking <laughs> around at about a quarter pace of where, how, how it normally works. And I think that, um, you know, one can tell a lot about uh, the business and about what they make when it uh, when you look yeah. at the rhythm and the uh, and all of these the rhythm and the pace of people and the intention with that as well. Absolutely. Yep. Um, Jester King, didn't we buy equipment from them, Doug? Way uh, back then? Uh, or am I thinking of someone else? You're thinking of the uh, sour brewers in uh, Michigan. Uh, oh, uh, Jolly, Jolly Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Jolly Pumpkin. That's it. That's it. Still a, still a slow <laughs> rhythm yeah. pace. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that place was yep. just chock full. You could barely walk around in it. Because there were all yeah. these barrels of various stages of, of souring. <laughs> and still only one person that knows the right combination of everything. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy this kind of pace in the brewery where it is a bit more, I, I don't want to call it leisurely because it's probably not. You have rigid schedules that I'm sure you keep mm -hmm. up with. But um, 
with how you brew beer, it's obviously a more time consuming process. Do you appreciate that? I do. I do. Uh, you would you would think that we brew it and then we sit around and wait for it, but the secret is we have a lot of fermentation tanks. In fact, we have twice as many as a comparable size ale brewery. So we are still busy all the time, uh, either brewing or filtering or packaging or cleaning, mostly cleaning, and uh, <laughs> and uh, so the the pace of the brewery operations isn't necessarily slow, but the pace of making the beer is. And I, uh, I do like that actually. It, it's, it develops over time. If you taste it after three days, you think there's something terribly wrong with it. Uh, but after three weeks, uh, all of a sudden it's amazing. And, uh, I like that slow development with the beer. Yeah, for sure. I imagine one defining moment for Metropolitan was moving from Ravenswood into your new uh, into your new facility, and then after that as well, uh, opening the tap room as well, which is uh, for those that haven't uh, been, uh, I really strongly recommend going for uh, for a number of reasons. But it's a, a lovely place to go drink beer. Um, would you think of those as defining moments, or is there are there other uh, other kinds of things that you'd point at and say this was a turning point for us as a company? Certainly, moving was. We moved to a new location. We opened a tap room, uh, which we did not have before. So that was that was huge. Uh, when we started, we had this vague theory that maybe we would have like a bottle shop or something in our space and it turned out that that was completely impractical and it definitely wasn't enough room for it in there um but it was and when we started it wasn't really a big thing for production breweries to have tap rooms they just well you couldn't when we started right and so moving to the new space definitely a requirement and uh so that was cool because being able to watch this this is a brewer's perspective you make beer and you ship it out in a production brewery and you don't see where it goes it just they order more next week and that's it and so you make beer you think it's good maybe and hope that somebody's going to drink it but when you have a tap room or maybe if it's a brew pub setting um uh, then you can turn around inside the brew house and look out the window into the tap room and see people drinking your beer and enjoying it. And that really is huge to me, at least like uh, when you think on a day to day basis, it's kind of ho-hum. But when you think about it, it's like, that's really cool. These people do drink it and they do like it. So that it's kind of morale boosting in a way, I think. <clears throat> so switching to the, to the new space was a big turning point. Yeah, I mean, it kind of feeds into that cultural aspect for you all, you know, because having been to the tap room on many occasions and loving it, you just see a bunch of families and friends getting together and, you know, really enjoying everything that you all are doing. And it just feeds into this whole cultural aspect that you guys are kind of propagating up in the city that not many other, I shouldn't say not many other breweries in the city are doing, but like you, there's something different about what you all are doing compared to the others. That's... That means a lot that you said that. Um, I appreciate that because when I think about moving into um, Rockwell where we had a bigger space and we had the tap room is um, 
one of the things as a business person that attracted, you know, a business, a person who likes running business that attracted me to craft beer is that it is a place where you're expected to use your voice and be unique and be authentic. And, you know, back, you know, New Glarus and Dogfish Head and, you know, Sierra Nevada and Summit and, you know, these folks that have been around for a really long time, um, we talked a lot about how we knew who the brewers were, we knew who the owners were, you know, they talked about things that mattered to them and that that for people like Doug and I, that would be a business that we could be in. And the taproom and um, the brewery, you know, people notice that they're comfortable there and that they can, for, as long as they're not fucking with someone else, you can pretty much do what you want and we'll facilitate it. Um, you know, in the old world and hopefully in the future, like you can pretty much just do what you want to do. And, you know, it's, I love that this business not only allows us, but expects us to have a say in things and um, use our platform to do things. And, you know, being on the river and being a part of the Avondale community, the Avondale neighborhood in Chicago, um, this is our space. This is our place where we get to make that happen, where you, you get to make people feel comfortable and feel accepted and feel like someone's going to look after them and, you know, get them what they need in order to do what it is they need to do. And um, that to me, like Doug said, you know, actually seeing people, on, you know, just sort of naturally understand that, that means a lot to me. You know, our space has, we have a TV, but it's covered up because we only really bring it out for elections and, um, you know, major sporting events that everyone wants to see. Um, but there's nothing hanging in the windows. There's no umbrellas on the tables. It, you're meant to just interact with people or interact with the bartender. And um, that means a lot to me. We, we need that. I mean, we've always needed that, but we really need that. And... I feel lucky that this industry not only fosters that type of thing, but encourages it. Definitely. I think that's the essence of where this all comes from. Before there were TVs, before there were cell phones, mm -hmm. you know, people would go to a tavern, they would get their dinner and they would have a drink and they would meet with people mm -hmm. in the area. And it's kind of what you guys are now. As you said, there's really only one TV there. I've been there yep. mm -hmm. so many times. I can't even count it. Um, and that TV has never been on. And it's just people. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's a good thing. You yeah, know, it's yeah. it really is. It's refreshing <laughs> to me. And I'm sure everyone here, you know, this is you don't even think to look at it because you've no. got a really nice view of the river. Right. You've got yeah. uh, you have good company. You <laughs> yeah. have a very open space. Uh, there's mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot more to do than that. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, and that's really beautiful in a world of um, tap rooms and spaces where people drink, where the entertainment becomes not what people are doing and what's immediately in front of you, but rather uh, mm -hmm. something else that's unrelated or entirely unfamiliar to what's immediately in front of you. And that's a yeah. lot less depressing than what's on TV. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, definitely. Do you feel like, um, so this is what you're kind of pushing out into the world and what you want your customers to kind of feel, experience and see what is the culture like internally as far as staffing goes? How do you manage and run the brewery on a day-to-day -day basis? Let's 
kind of look at it maybe pre-COVID because I'm sure it's very different yeah. now. But let's go there, and then we can run into kind of how things are doing right now. Well, um, we are a small team because, you know, we make lager and we sell it at AL prices. So, our, you know, we run a pretty tight ship. So um, the team, you know, two of our longest-running team members also own part of the brewery now. Um, and then we have a few other, we have, you know, Doug, Doug pretty much presides over brewing process. I call Doug the wizard in our landing party. <laughs> <laughs> He's the talent and you only, know, only uh, level two. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so in the brewery pretty much, and you know, in the tap room, when it comes down to the beer, Doug is, everything goes through Doug. Everything is, you know, he is still every day hands-on with the beer and still brewing beer too with Peter, who's our head brewer, who does, you know, he's our head brewer, which means he does the bulk of the hard work. Um, uh, so, you know, so being a small team and having ownership being Doug and I, who are both spread pretty thin across a lot of duties, people are pretty much left to manage their own departments, manage their own schedules. Um, and, you know, we just, we, we meet on the regular and, you know, keep each other apprised of what's needed. But, you know, all of the parts of the process come together because the people in the departments, you know, the community. So the brewery is set up open space so that we can see each other for one thing. It increases safety and it also increases efficiency. And it's also set up with Jap- uh, Japanese, you know, flow manufacturing. So the fewest steps possible between steps. So that saves time and energy and makes things efficient too. But it also makes the team cohesive because they interact with each other across departments. So it winds up being where it's a lot of lateral management across departments that sort of flows through Doug. And then I come in in terms of, you know, running our public face, uh, dealing with distribution, um, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's because we're so small, we have to aim for efficiency and everybody is, uh, everyone there has really strong personality, but we like, this sounds cheesy as fuck, but we love each other. Like we all know that we're there for the same reason. And even when there's the occasional conflict, right away it's recognized that oh wait 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 we're all here doing the same thing we're just feeling extra passionate about it right now (laughs) you know so um that is how it is internally is authentic to what you see outside externally as well and i mean you see the lost boys the nickname the guys in the brewery got a few years ago um you see them on the internet you know i post them to the metro pages you know, we're very much a family and very much accepting and working together and like, you know, collaborating with each other, just like we would expect outwardly. Um, and now we're adding a lot of people to the front of the house team for uh, pandemic, you know, because you need more people because people need to work shorter shifts and there's a lot more work to do, um, you know, cleaning and sanitizing. So our family is about to grow. And um, we're super excited about that because we're able to help out people who need some work, 
we're able to serve customers better, you know, we're able to follow guidelines. So um, what it feels like in the tap room, I, I mean, Doug, you can probably speak to this too. I feel like we feel like in the brewery as well. Yeah. I think we keep the, keep it consistent. And, 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 uh, and what you're one part of what you're saying is how, as a lager brewery, everything is takes more time, as we've discussed, mm-hmm. and it's more expensive because of that. And so we are we have learned how to run very efficiently mm-hmm. with a minimum number of people and a minimum number of expenses and so on. Uh, and I look at I look at some reports of some breweries and things uh, through the industry and whatever where. They're talking about how they have like 14 people on staff in a in an 1800 per uh, barrel per year brewery, and I'm thinking, how do they even afford that? And also, what are all those people doing? <laughs> because we've got a production crew of six in a in, or five really in a in a, a 4,000 barrel brewery. Well, I think that's one of uh-huh. the, the that harkens back to what we were speaking about earlier is when you go into is getting a sense of what the business is like when you walk through a building. And mm-hmm. so with the exactly those types of breweries that you were referring to that may have 18 people um, in 1800 square feet making 1800 barrels a year <laughs> is that you have a ton of people running around like chickens with their heads cut off because <laughs> One guy is saying, we're going to put a 60-barrel fermenter here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And everyone else is running around and essentially uh, without direction. And so mm-hmm. maybe it, yeah. it comes to organization mm-hmm. in a lot of ways to be able mm-hmm. to be efficient in that way. Definitely. Yep. And, you know, we've been working together a long time. I think that's part of it, too. Yeah, the whole team. Yeah. yeah. And that, like, that's kind of what I was going to lead into is I know you and I, Tracy, have had this conversation many times because I kind of admire how the structure of Metropolitan is set up from, I don't even want to call it a management standpoint because you kind of give everyone their own kind of, um, it, like you said, they set their own schedule and they work mm-hmm. on their own kind of uh, time frame, whatever works for mm-hmm. them, as long as whatever needs to get done gets done by a yep. deadline. And that's something you don't really see in a brewery culture or just American work culture in general. And I think it kind of has fostered a really awesome team for you guys that has grown with you as the brewery grows. And it's kind of cool for me to see, too, in these COVID times, you're not actually uh, trimming down the staff. You're taking your staff's livelihood into consideration and their health and well-being, and you're adding mm-hmm. on and you're giving people chances in a time where this industry mm-hmm. is kind of suffering and people aren't Scaling getting those back, chances. Anything, yeah. yeah, yeah, we were yeah. really lucky that we got uh, that PPP loan mm-hmm. uh, in the time that we did, and that allowed yeah. us to maintain our uh, staff and their their paid positions mm-hmm. getting the canning project off the ground helped too yeah mm-hmm. because yeah. that that definitely increased our receipts when they could have not so yeah it's we're pretty scrappy <laughs> <laughs> um let's uh should we talk about collaborations and talk about some dortmunder for a minute sure yes 
Yeah. I've been waiting for this. Okay. Well, you uh, you alluded to Humbucker earlier in conversation, uh-huh. Tracy. Do you want to uh, talk about how it got started, or should we talk about how Dortmunder as a style came into our lives? Actually, Alexi, I love to talk about how when we chose it, um, what you told us about how people in Scandinavia drink. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So that was that was like a magic moment for me. So I would like. Yeah. I think we, you should tell us that. Part. Yeah. How do people in yeah. Scandinavia? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dortmunder. So we know uh, that the style has its roots in Dortmund, and it's an industrial uh, an industrial lager uh, with a hop profile uh, that is unique and beautiful. Um, my first exposure, I had a couple of exposures to, uh, that, that sounds wrong. I had, uh, experiences <laughs> with, with Dortmunder, uh, <laughs> at unique points in my life that, uh, like Dortmund is Dortmunder kind of like has framed my craft beer experience in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. I was really stoked to have an opportunity to, um, uh, make, uh, the style with Metro, but going back to, uh, time spending in Sweden and, experiencing a beer called Norland's Gold. So that's a beer whose, it is uh, it is an industrial-made uh, Dortmunder, which is unique for Scandinavia. And the marketing is rather specific with it. It is represents, uh, or it shows uh, a very idyllic notion of what northern Sweden is, and it's fish, and it's mountains, and it's all these things that uh, people associate with uh, with vacation. Uh, and that particular part of the country, which is uh, extremely rural, and it represent it's supposed to represent something of a simple life. And uh, in, for those of you that have traveled to Sweden or other countries that have government-owned stores, uh, you can only buy alcohol uh, in that country of four and a half percent or higher uh, in very specific time windows at uh, government off licenses, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time when I was traveling uh, quite heavily for the first time there, Norland's Gold was something that stood out as four and a half percent or below in the stores where I could buy beer whenever I wanted to at the 7-Eleven. So I drank a lot of Norland's Gold because I was also a poor planner at that point in my life. <laughs> and so uh, I became very interested in this particular style. I mean, it's an industrial made uh, Dortmunder that's really, really unique. And another, and I've enjoyed that beer, uh, especially for what it is uh, since, um, and also uh, at the a bar I worked at before called Local Option, they uh, were very, very uh, proactive with a brand called Dab, which is a German-made uh, Dortmunder. Mm-hmm. That's uh, an excellent example from of the Dortmund. style. From Dortmund, yeah. nonetheless, not, yeah. not from uh, Norland in Sweden, that's for sure. <laughs> And uh, so Dortmund and that, and I remember drinking a, a crap load of that when I lived above the bar there. And so uh, Dortmund has kind of like framed these unique experiences that I've had with beer and music. And so um, when uh, Tracy, Doug, and I sat down to talk about uh, beer and you know what's uh, what could we do together, I think Dortmunder made sense for a lot of different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what does Dortmunder mean to you two? To me, it's uh, a beer from Dortmund. Uh, <laughs> no, but uh, and Chicago the, and Norland and Norland. <laughs> the, the, uh, the 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 
industrial aspect you're referencing, uh, Dortmund was like the big mining area, I guess, from in Germany, and so it was a beer made for these hardcore miner guys who were all covered in coal dust all the time. They'd get out of the mines and want a beer, and this was the beer that was made for them. So it's sort of a working class beer. Um, it's in some ways, stylistically, it's uh, like a Hellas, but stronger. Um, and then the other big aspect to it is that the water of Dortmund, and the water is a very important part of beer all around the world. Um, many beer styles arose because of the water conditions. The minerals in the water play a big part in, in, in beer. Uh, and so, in, for instance, Pilsner in, in Pilsen, uh, the water is very, very soft, and that lent to the uh, ability to make a very light-colored beer with a fairly strong hop character. And in in Dublin, Ireland, they have very hard water, which let, allowed them. They found that it was uh, the beer tasted better if they put a bunch of dark roasted malts in it. And so we have we have Guinness. Um, so in in uh, Dortmund, they have pretty hard water with a lot of various minerals, particularly. Uh, calcium uh, carbonate, or I'm sorry, calcium sulfate, and calcium chloride, and all these things in it, and it so much so that tends the you know lighter colored beer, more delicate beer, comes across as almost a flavor in the beer. It, it, it typically minerals play more of a, a, a part in. The chemistry of making beer, so the not and less in the in the final flavor, uh, but in the case of Dortmund, I, you can actually get a, a slight minerally character to it. I wouldn't call it salty, but if you think about the way that maybe baking soda tastes or um, or, or something like that, you know, it's it's, a, it's not salty, but it's minerally, and. Um, so Dort was sort of a stronger Hellas, and then it had this water that was full of minerals. Uh, and so those things together give you a very unique taste. Uh, it's a beer that is light malts, uh, hops back it up strongly. That's not super bitter. It's definitely not strongly aromatically hoppy, but there's a, there's a hop presence to it. And uh, and then this dryness maybe that's caused by the minerals, and so to me, uh, replicating not necessarily the water of, of of Dortmund, but replicating a mineral characteristic in the water that we have here in Chicago that would come across in the beer was part of the fun of making it. Absolutely, um, Tracy. Let's talk about um, maybe the uh, who. Uh, what other elements are involved in this beer? Uh, it's something that I'm proud to have as a as a collaboration beer with uh, with Metropolitan. Um, Randy Mosher created the artwork as well, which uh, uh, for me personally was super special. Uh, having read all of his books and looking up mm -hmm. to him from a knowledge was personally really really I was the dork in me was mm -hmm. super stoked. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, what? Uh, Tell us a little bit more about about this beer from your end, as far as the um, the other aspects of it. Well, um, another one of my favorite things about the industry is the uh, collab. 
um, maybe you guys know this. Do you remember right around the time we started up, there were Lost Abbey and another brewery were like struggling over a name. Was it Stone? And do you remember? And then they decided that instead of going to court, they would make the beer together. Yes, I don't remember the beer name. That was Avery. That was was a collaboration, not litigation. Yes. That's uh, it. That's it. (laughs) So I'm not sure if that was like the first time breweries collaborated or not. But I remember that that made news, not only in the industry, but out in general, you know, mainstream. Um, And I, you know, I believe that we'll... People, I, and I, I don't, I wish I could quote authors and like back myself up here, but I really believe that collaboration is going to make everybody more money than competition. That working together and, you know, um, combining resources, combining, you know, intellectual assets, things like that are, are going to produce things that more people want. And, um, the craft beer industry, I don't know if the collaboration, not litigation was the first one, but it, it, even if it wasn't, after that, it, it definitely became a thing that breweries did, was made beer together. And um, that then reached out, or that sort of stretched out into other things where people were collaborating with restaurants and with bars, and in our case, um, you know, with Alexi's Music Festival. Um, and you know, music and beer, there's a lot of crossover interest there, too. We've done, we did Cold Hope, a beer with Pelican, to celebrate their new release last year, um, a beer to guard. And, uh, you know, we've thought about working with other other music and musicians as well. But, you know, we're not the only, certainly, hardly not the only ones. Lots of breweries have worked with musicians and bands and things like that. And um, I just think it's a super fun way to cross-promote and to give people something to talk about, um, you know, whether they're talking about the beer or they're talking about attending, you know, in the future, attending um, Scorched Tundra. You know, I almost always say summer slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> Two different things. Very, very, very different. different things. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I laugh about it, because I've been to both. And I'm like, <laughs> why am I getting those mixed up? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's funny you bring up that Pelican beer. I remember being at the event um, when the beer was released and then there was the listening party. And um, there was a small group of, I I mean, they were probably 21 to 24, 25 age group. Uh And uh, they were outside on the patio before the listening began. They're like, yeah, we've never been here. They were really stoked about being at Metro and drinking the beer but then also being able to listen to one of their favorite bands. And they were from Michigan. They never even heard of Metropolitan. And so that was really cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. There it is. That's that, That's exactly it. That cross-promotion that is like, yeah, that's great. I, I thought you were going to tell the story of the people who went outside when we started up the record. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> we, were, we were talking to Sean, who owns Demon, uh, Demon Tap in the neighborhood. And they have done listening parties. And I was talking to him ahead of time. And he said, you know... You'll call it a listening party, but, you know, it's a bar and you can't really like turn it up so that people can't talk or anything. And I just, I'm like, oh, okay. And yes, and you can. Logan, and yes, you did. <laughs> yes, we so did. Logan, 
Logan, our seller master, who really kind of pulled that whole collaboration together, um, as soon as we said the record was going to start, he went behind the bar, cranked that thing up, and seriously, everyone in the bar just sat there and listened to it. It just absolutely... It was awesome. <laughs> it laugh. Yeah, it was so good. Yeah, it was what I will say. I, I would probably agree with Sean on most fronts, but uh, that was... Um... That was one instance where everyone kind of hung out. And I think it's also a tribute to Pelican's music just being a bit more chill mm-hmm. and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. kind of going with the vibe of the brewery and the space in general, you know? I think it was a yeah. very well-planned out kind of event. And Yeah, those guys were yeah. fun to work with, too. They're, they they're laid back, they're into beer, and, yeah, they're knowledgeable. And they, you know, they were consummate professionals, too, you know, in terms of the marketing and pulling things together and... You know that was really helpful. Um, yeah. You know, so they're not just some fly by night band who's like <laughs> these guys are a business, just yep. like us, <laughs> in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, a- absolutely. And speaking from personal experience, having brought them over to Sweden as well, I can attest for Scorch Tundra over there. I can attest that they're uh, phenomenal folks, mm-hmm. and they. Uh, Beer drinkers, also family people too. I think maybe more yeah. than one of the, or a yeah. couple of them now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And vegan too, yeah. which is important to you, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Well, I think uh, we need to. We, need we to, should. Yeah. Should we wrap things up I here? I think we should. It's about that time. It's about that time. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, thanks to both uh, Tracy and Doug for joining us today. Um, where can our audience find you? Uh, this isn't a trick oh. question. I, I, meant, I meant the internet and or your tap room. There, there, there was a face of, uh, I don't, I don't want, know what I asked. I don't want that. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to say thank you for having us. Um, Alexia and Sam, We, I can speak for all of us. We absolutely love doing stuff with you guys. And um, this is super exciting that we can still do this project. Um, you can look for Humbucker. Uh, we're still working out some packaging details and getting things going. Um, but you can, you'll find humbucker before the summer is over. Um, hopefully later this month, early August is what it's looking like. Um, our brewery and our, um, we're, we are, uh, in phase three of pandemic management. So you can sit on our patio, um, and you can check our Google business site and our, um, Instagram uh, Facebook, Twitter, and our website all for hours. I, it's hard to discuss what our hours are because they change, you know, pretty more rapid, you know, more rapidly now as like, for example, we're closing early tomorrow night because we are going to move into phase four next week and we're closing down for the night to do staff training on, um, procedures and guidelines and things like that. So, you know, um, check out our website, Check out our social media and our Google business site. Um, and if in doubt, just give us a call. Our tap room number is all over the place. You can give a call and find out what's up. We are still doing curbside pickup for those who are uncomfortable uh, and would rather us load the beer into their car. We can You can buy our, our beer online via our website, metrobrewing.com. Um, set up your pickup time, and we will, we will see you wherever you are. If you want us to load it in the car, if you want to pop in and grab it yourself, we can accommodate. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of where Humbucker can be found, um, right now, you know, we have, I think, Alex, you might have some ideas as to where that might be. But I think, you know, right now we can 
promise that it'll be, you can buy it at, and you can drink it at the tap room once it's available. As far as other accounts and things like that, other places in the city, um, Alexi, unless you know something I don't, I think that's still pending yeah, information. some of that we're working out right now, but mm-hmm. uh, definitely check the episode notes uh, and ch- uh, keep an eye on both uh, Metro and Scorched Tundra's yep. social media, uh, and we'll be updating folks yeah. um, uh, as things go. Yeah, this pandemic pa- pandemic is pretty crazy. I mean, what's next? <laughs> Murder hornets? Oh, no, wait, we already wait. had that. It happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you guys for really thank joining you. us. And, like, this has meant a lot to both of us. And carrying on this uh, humbucker idea is really important. So it's really great. Yeah. And um, definitely keep your staff safe during all this. And we'll definitely see you soon as, you know, it's all kind of clearing up. Definitely. Yeah, we'll see you on the flip side. The flip side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, thank you very much. Mm.